This is the Product Management Leaders Podcast, in which you hear from some of the top PM leaders about their real-world strategies and tactics for building world-class products. It's sponsored by Vox Implant, the leading serverless communications platform and no-code drag-and-drop contact center solution. Vox Implant enables product leaders and developers to integrate communications into their products, such as embedding voice, video, SMS, in-app chat, and natural language processing. Join over 30,000 businesses trusting Vox Implant. Now let's jump into the show. Hey, this is your host, Grant Duncan. Today, I'm speaking with Larry Furr, the Chief Product Officer at Canopy. He leads Canopy's PM, Engineering, QA, DevOps, and UX teams. Larry previously worked at Ghostery, Nice in Contact, and others. So I'm excited to hear about his PM strategies. Let's jump into it. Hi there, I'm Grant Duncan, VP of Marketing at Vox Implant, and I'm really excited to have on to the Product Management Leaders podcast, Larry Furr. Larry, can you start by introducing yourself? Uh, what's your role? I know you're the Chief Product Officer at Canopy, but maybe you can share a little bit about what that means and what the company does. Uh, sure. First off, thanks for having me on the show, Grant. Uh, great to be talking to you. And uh uh, looking forward to the conversation. Uh, yes, as you mentioned, I'm Chief Product Officer at Canopy. Um, Canopy is a cloud-based uh, SaaS solution for running accounting firms. So we we sell our software to uh, small businesses that are accounting firms across North America, and and uh, it helps them both to manage their staff as well as manage relationships with their clients. So everything from CRM to task management to client portals time tracking, invoicing, payments, and the like. Uh, and as far as what I do there, um, I, I uh, run both uh, engineering and uh, product management and, and uh, UX design. So I oversee really all things related to product development. Wow, that's, that's pretty cool. I imagine because you oversee all three of those, you get to really have an integrated approach to how you do this. It's not like, oh, this team is being slow because they all roll into you. <laughs> Yeah, it it, uh, it definitely takes away the ability to point any fingers of blame uh, with regards to product development, and so right. which I, I and I prefer it that way, honestly. Even even earlier in my career, when I was just focused on on the product and UX side of things, it was always important to me to have a really strong relationship with the technology leader in the company and and treat it more like a partnership as opposed to you know two two separate departments. Um, so. You know, Canopy, we happen to be one department. I head that department, um, but it's still very much a partnership that the VP of engineering that, that works with me, um, you know, he and I are brothers in arms when it comes to, uh, you know, planning out uh, our roadmap, and our priorities, and, and uh, we've got each other's backs all the time. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Okay, so you talked about those three areas. Can you talk a little bit more about how you structure your team? I imagine it may be is a little different than some because you are overseeing all three of those and how many people are on your team, that sort of information. Sure, yeah. So so the entire department's a little over 50 people. Um, that's mostly engineering, you know, roughly 30-odd people in engineering and then about uh, seven or eight in product and, and uh, seven or so in, in, in uh, our, our UX team. And you know, I think as you as you move into executive positions, whether you're a CEO or a CRO or a CMO or whatever, you know, you find yourself in, in a spot where 
you haven't necessarily done the different job functions that you're responsible for. You may have done some of them, but not all of them. And so you really have to rely upon um, people who are experts in those fields to, to help you out. Um, and and that's, that's no different in my role as a, as, a, as a CPO as it would be for any other CXO uh, position. Uh, and so I think in large part, team structure is based off of your strengths and weaknesses as an executive. So in my case, really strong in, in product management. That's what I spent my career in. Um, kind of okay in UX uh, because I, I've just worked closely with UX designers, you know, throughout my career and have dabbled a little bit more as a hobby than as a profession. Sure. Um, and then on the engineering side, I'm not I'm not a software developer by trade, so I, I definitely can talk the language uh, and understand how code gets made, but I can't write it myself. And so that that'd be my weakest of the three, you know, areas that I'm responsible for. And so. The way I have it structured right now is I have a really strong VP of engineering that I mentioned to earlier um, that, that uh, helps run the engineering side of things. Um, and, and I largely delegate those responsibilities to him. Um, and then on the product side, I'm a little bit more hands-on. The, the org is a little bit uh, you know, less structured or, or less hierarchical there. Um, and then on the UX side, I've got a director of UX who, who runs the, the, the UX team. So uh, that, that's how we currently have them. Mm, got it. Yeah, that's a large team. It's a lot of people to manage. Even just you think about leading and uh, motivating. <laughs> that's a lot of people. It is. It is. And I mean, and and you know, again, there is a hierarchy there. So it's not like I've got fifty, you know, some direct <laughs> reports. Um, but I have six, and that is a lot. And and uh, one thing that I've tried to do, and it's been a you know, I've been at Canopy now for a little over a year and a half, and I set myself a goal early on that I've been able to stick to that I wanted to meet every person in my department and be able to talk to them at least once every quarter. And so I've, I've been able to keep to that. And it's, it's honestly been the single most important thing that I've done because those conversations are where I honestly get a lot of the most important information in my job because you, you're talking to, to every single person and you get to hear what they like, what they don't like, where they think there's room for improvement, where they might be running into problems. Um, and it's, it's, it's been very enlightening. And so. Uh, you know, that you can have a big organization and still stay in touch with your people. It just takes a little bit of time and effort. Yeah, that's great. So I've heard others call that like skip level meetings. Um, yes. You know, where you're going, not just your uh, direct reports, but, you know, the people under them and such. How do your direct reports feel about you running those meetings? Have they gotten comfortable with it or did you have some hesitancy in the beginning? That's a great question. Yeah. I see skip level meetings is a little bit different because that's usually like just going one level down to like, or mm. sorry, two levels down. So talking to the people who go to your direct reports and I, yeah. I do have those as well. Um, I do them on a, on about a monthly cadence. Um, okay. and, and I always do that kind of with the blessing of that, you know, in between manager, you know, just to make sure they understand I'm not trying to do your job for you. I'm not trying to go over your head here. This is just about me, you know, you know, giving really, it's more about the employee. It's about giving them an opportunity, you know, to talk to the to the boss, right, and kind of uh, humanize me, right. So I'm not just some suit, but I'm I'm someone that that you know actually is normal and you know goes to his kids' baseball you know games on the Saturdays just like he you know he or she does, and and uh, yeah. we you know we can talk about life or work or whatever they really want to. Um, and, and I think that just humanizes you know work relationships. Um, uh, but but for the for the quarterly one on ones that I do with really everybody, I mean, even interns, you know, there's there's people that are three or four you know layers down the org chart yeah, for me, yeah. but I still make a point of meeting with them once a quarter. That's that's really something that I just think is important to to have a more cohesive team. And again, it's you know it, it helps keep me grounded 
um, so that I, I don't, you know, you don't turn into this like emperor with no clothes sort of situation where, you know, there, there's problems that you're just not seeing because you're too far removed from, from the people that are actually doing the work. Yeah. And do you set the agenda for those meetings or let each person talk about whatever they want? The latter. Yeah. So, so I tell people, this is your time. Um, and, and it's, it's short, it's a 15 minute meeting once a quarter. So, mm-hmm. uh, it, it oftentimes goes more than 15 minutes. Um, and, and I kind of, and that's fine. I'm yeah. fine with that. You know, so sometimes it goes for half an hour and, and that's, and, and other people are sort of like, Hey, you know, I don't really have any questions. Everything's great. I like my job. And, and then we sort of talk more about like, Hey, what are you doing this weekend? Any summer plans? Um, other people have a lot to talk about and, and, uh, they have a lot of questions and, you know, some people come with a list. They're like, yeah, I've been waiting for this. And, and it really is up to the individual. And that's, that's how I like to have it. Hmm. Yeah, that's great. So when you think about planning, how do you determine your quarterly goals so you can structure the team and the, the strategy in general? Yeah, so we we use the OKRs method, which you know, a lot of people know, objectives and key results. Uh, so yep. we have company objectives that we. Well, I'll, I'll take a step back. We have sort of a, a larger, like, you know, like overall single objective or mission statement, if you will, that the company sets. Um, and then departmentally, we we kind of tether objectives uh, to those. And sometimes the objectives kind of cross more than one department. Sometimes they're department specific. Yeah. Uh, and then to, are you referring there to like annual planning quarterly? This is quarterly. Okay. This is quarterly. Yeah. And, Got it. and then from there, uh, you know, we, I work with, you know, my direct reports to, to come up with, okay, what are, what are the initiatives that we need to do to achieve this objective? And what are the key results that are going to show or demonstrate whether or not we, we, you know, hit, hit the mark. Um, and so, yeah, we do that as a quarterly exercise. Uh, it's all, sort of organized in a Google spreadsheet. We're a big, you know, big use of the Google suite at, at uh, Canopy. And, uh, and it's, it's where we track, we track all of our progress and, and we, uh, we're really, we're really good at it. I mean, we look at it in our, in our, uh, monthly, uh, all hands meetings, which we refer to as deep dives, um, that we have with the company, as well as at the end of each quarter, we, we uh, show the results company wide, as well as to our board of directors. So it's, there's a lot of transparency around the, not only the process, but also the results. Hmm. That's great. And when you think about maybe that's quarterly or monthly, like you mentioned, or even on a weekly basis, what are some of the key metrics that you're reporting on and tracking? Yeah. So on the you know product development side of things, uh, they fall into a couple of different categories. Uh, you know, one is around security. Uh, you know, we're, we're dealing with sensitive information. We've got people's bank statements and tax forms and, and, and whatnot in our system. And so security is important. Like we have, we have bank level security at Canopy. Uh, yeah, I'm and, sure. and we, we have initiatives to make sure that we keep security top notch at all times. So that, that, that's a category. Um, because we're a cloud-based uh, company and we're hosting uh, what, what is a system critical product for our, for our uh, accounting uh, customers. Uh, as you'd imagine, reliability uptime is also uh, something that, that we care a lot about. And, and we have uh, goals and initiatives around that to make sure that we stay up for our customers. And then uh, from a product development standpoint, we have um, key results around uh, product performance. Um, so we're tracking certain you know, KPIs that, that indicate you know, strong adoption of the product and, and value that people are getting from the product, as well as uh, we, we're interested in how the product is impacting our sales. So we also care a lot about things like 
average deal size and close ratios and and uh, what the LTV of the product is. Uh, make sure that you know we're uh, churn is a big one, right? Like these are all uh, things that we care a lot about as a product development team um, and that we're reporting on regularly. Mm, yeah, and do you have like? custom homegrown tools that you're using to track these metrics? Um, or are you using out-of-the-box solutions? Uh, we mostly use out-of-the-box solutions. Um, so uh, for like, for example, for, for, you know, tracking all of our kind of sales numbers and whatnot, we're, we're inside of Salesforce, which along with everybody else in the world, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, for, for our subscription information and churn and, and kind of customer information. Um, we use a, a product called Zora, which uh, again is a pretty common one. Yep. Um, we, we pull a lot of our product usage data. Um, we have an analytics service that we did write ourselves, but that dumps into a mix panel uh, mm. for visualizing, uh, you know, graphs and charts and stuff. Um, and then in many cases, we pull data from all these different places and then just pull it into good old fashioned Google spreadsheets and, and make pretty charts that we put into slides for our, our, uh, you know, our, our, uh, board of directors and, and our employees. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. Oh, and then on the, on the engineering side, we use Datadog and some other things to, to monitor hmm. system performance and uptime. Yeah. They've had incredible growth because yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of adoption there. Yep. Yeah. And from a UX UI side, are there any core metrics there or, or is it just tied to those larger goals and metrics you were talking about? There are, yeah. So um, one of the things that we we do, and I'm going to slaughter the name of it now. I want to say it's like, uh, I forget, it's like ACPU, but I don't think I got the right acronyms. Uh, my, my UX director will, will shoot me for this now, but <laughs> it's a usability um, test. That, and it's, it's like a, an industry standard. Um, and and you, you can send the test to your customers, you get the results, and there's like a benchmark that you can set it against. So we've started doing that as, as one way to, to test our usability. We've also done some work to make sure that we're following some of the best practices around accessibility. Not, not saying that we're perfect. We don't have screen readers or any of that kind of stuff you know, working necessarily. But, but uh, we, we've been doing some work there to make sure that our colors are good you know, for people that have sure. vision impairments and and uh, you know the the font size is is right, and there's the, the right crisp crispness and and, and sort of uh, contrast between uh, font colors and background uh, colors. And so we've we've been doing some work there to to help meet some of the accessibility standards that are out there. Mm, very cool. So when you think about your product roadmap, how do you balance customer requests versus maybe new innovations or areas you want to head that maybe customers aren't asking for yet? Yeah, um, it's, a great, it's a great question because uh, you know, customers typically ask about the problems they're dealing with today, but they don't necessarily always anticipate you know, the, the, the opportunities for solving problems that they don't even recognize that are problems. Or maybe they do recognize their problems, but they don't, they don't necessarily recognize that your product could solve those problems for them as an example. Uh, so yeah, there, there's uh, there's danger in just having, you know, your, your roadmap be whatever customers are asking for. Um, that, that's, that's a recipe for disaster. Uh, so as far as figuring out like what those other things are, um, there's a lot, there's a lot of ways to do it, but, but one of the big ways is just understanding the industry and the market and, and where things are headed and, you know, keeping your eyes peeled for opportunities, things that, that things that uh, maybe adjacent, you know, product categories that you could get into or, um, uh, you know, for example, when, like when COVID hit, 
we, we realized really quickly that this was going to be an opportunity to take advantage of the fact that this is really disrupting the way people are doing accounting work. Um, and in our case, we were, we were pretty lucky that we were ahead of the curve. We're already a cloud company. We did everything in the cloud. So we were well positioned to handle COVID for our customers um, who, you know, suddenly were realizing that a, that a big, you know, a room of filing cabinets with all of their clients, you know, uh, forms in it didn't work out so well when everyone's working from home because no one has access to those filing cabinets now. And so we were, you know, it's like, hey, you know how we have that cloud document storage? Like, this is why you got to get <laughs> all your files into the cloud. And so, you know, for our customers who had already done that, they were, they were ready to go. For our customers who didn't, they're like, oh yeah, we got it. We got to start making that transition over to being digital, um, and so that that was a big help for us. We also have a client portal, which is a which is a mechanism for uh, our, our customers' clients to upload documents, um, do you know, get tasks, uh, communicate back and forth, and, and then ultimately pay their bill uh, when their accountant is is done doing work for them. And so again, we were we were in really great shape there because we had that portal, and that was able to replace the kind of in office you know face to face meeting. That, that some people were still relying upon um, to do their business. So, uh, you know, now, would we have been ready for those things if we were just doing what customers asked? Probably not, because a, a lot of accountants weren't thinking to ask for, you know, cloud, cloud storage for files or for a client portal. Um, but thankfully, Canopy, you know, was, was looking ahead and, and realizing there was a better way to do things. And, and uh, we, were, we were prepared for that. So when COVID hit, it, it ended up being an opportunity instead of a disaster for us. Yeah, I can imagine the product adoption stats on uh, document storage probably <laughs> increased quickly there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's actually pretty, we, we track this. It's one of the KPIs that we look at is, is uh, the number of files that are being uploaded into the system. And it, it is very much a hockey stick uh, around the time of COVID. Yeah, yeah, I bet. So let's say, you know, you're thinking about uh, these different factors for your roadmap. How do you think about prioritization or trade-off decisions when things seem both really valuable? How are you going to choose one versus the other? And it is the hardest thing to do as a product manager. I tell everybody that. The <laughs> hardest and coincidentally, or maybe not coincidentally, the most important thing that you do as a product manager is prioritization. Like It's like the old joke of in the real estate business, they say the three most important things are location, location, location. Now, I, I like to say that in the product you know, world, three most important things are prioritization, prioritization, prioritization. Although I sometimes <laughs> replace that with communication, 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 because that's also really important. Sure. Um, but yeah, prioritization is super hard. Uh, and it's hard because like, it's, there's not a science to it. It's there, I mean, there can be, and there's methodologies. You know, I, I'm a fan of the Kano uh, methodology as an example, and there's others that are out there um, to try and make it a scientific sort of process. But at the end of the day, there is art to it and there is instinct and there's intuition and there's things that go into it um, to, to help you make the right decisions. And it's just super hard. And I don't, I don't have any like magic pixie dust to like tell people to do to, to be able to prioritize stuff other than I would just say, check your ego at the door, ask a ton of questions, get data and input from everywhere you possibly can, and then just do what you think is right for the company. Um, that, that's going to you know, have the most success. There, there's no shortage of good things that you can do, but trying to figure out the most important things to do in the right order, man, that is that is what product management is all about, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, I like that. The three Ps: prioritization, prioritization, prioritization. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it's critical. Well, and the other thing I'll say too, uh, and you know, 
product managers on my team probably get tired of hearing me say this, but like prioritization is not a one and done activity. It's an everyday activity. Uh, One of the great things about agile development and getting out of the world of waterfall is that you do have the flexibility to reprioritize and change things. Um, You couldn't really do that when you were shipping box software once a year. Um, But in the world of agile and cloud development and cloud hosting, you, you can be a lot more um, resilient to, to new data points that come in, um, or not resilient, but responsive, I should say, to new data points that come in and, and make those changes in prioritization. I think sometimes product teams are afraid to do that. They kind of get a plan in place. They've done their research. They've got their requirements written. They're like, man, like if we change priority, I have to go out and like do more research. And like, we have to make new mock-ups and we have to rewrite the requirements. We got to go have conversations with engineers again. And, and like, let's just stay the course. Like, let's just build a thing that we already know what to do. And, and that's a mistake. Like, you need to be willing to reprioritize if new data has come in that's told you that you're not working on the most important thing. Now, I'm not saying just blow up your roadmap every day because there, there's, you know, switching costs that happen if you, if you sort of stop something mid-tracks. Right. Um, but you do need to be willing to make changes uh, so that you can, you can make sure that the most important stuff is working, being worked on. And that most important definition can change and, and, and does change from, from one day to the next based on new data that comes in. Yeah. Can you share about one of the hardest product decisions you've had to make? Uh, probably soon after I joined Canopy. Um, so, so we had a couple of different products that we were building, um, three, three in total. Uh, we had a tax resolution product, which was very strong and mature and had really good adoption, good mar- product market fit. Um, and, and, but, it, but it was sort of a, a small market. So we knew there wasn't a lot of growth opportunity there. Mm, yeah. um, we had a practice management product, which is the one I, I kind of described at the beginning of this call, which helps you manage your, your, your firm and your, and your customers. Um, and, and that's a great product with a huge opportunity, but we hadn't gotten the product market fit yet. And so we had some work to do there. Um, and then we had kind of our, our like green field sort of like shoot for the stars product, which was a tax preparation tool. We were trying to build tax prep hundred percent in the cloud, not for consumers, not like a, like a turbo tax, but for tax professionals. Um, and and that's a really high bar because, uh, you have to basically support every tax form at the federal, state, local municipality level. Um, and, and there's no 80, 20 rule. You either support everything or you don't, if you don't support everything, people can't use your tool, right? They're going to go use the tool that can. And so the whole 80, 20, you know, uh, crawl, walk, run, you know, stuff that we talk about, you know, iterative development, that's all out the window when you're trying to build a tax prep tool, right? It's like, you know, your, your car can either do everything a car can do, or it can't, you can't sell someone a car without steering wheel just doesn't work. And so, um, we had these three products. It was too much for where we were at as a company currently, from a, from a, from a growth uh, level, from a resourcing and staffing, you know, capability level. Um, and, and you know, when you're doing too many things and you're still a small company, you end up failing at all three. And that's kind of part of what Canopy was struggling with. And so, uh, I and others had to make the very hard decision to basically kill one of those products. Um, and and uh, we decided it would be the tax prep product. And so we put that on ice. That was a hard decision because we had put a lot of time into developing it. We had raised a lot of money uh, on developing it, and and we had you know we we even were in a beta and we had some customers that were trying it out and and kind of loving it and like hey I can't wait until this is like I can buy this and so we had to make a very hard decision to say you know what we just can't 
run two races at the same time. We're just not adequately staffed and financed to do that. And so we put tax prep on hold um, and we've been focusing on practice management um, since that time. But it was absolutely the right thing to do uh, because we've now reached product market fit with that product and, and the numbers show it. Um, retention is through the roof. Um, expansion is through the roof. And we're, we can't wait to get out of tax season. The, the, the delay from April 15th to May 17th has kind of slowed us down a little bit because <laughs> people don't necessarily want to talk to you when they're trying to file taxes. Um, but once we, once we get past that tax deadline, we expect to see our sales be through the roof this summer as well. So we're very excited about that. And, and it would not have happened had we not made a decision to focus and, and put that other product on the shelf for, for the time being. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds like a difficult decision, but I'm glad it's paying off for you. So that that's an interesting point you brought up there at the end with tax season. I imagine, as you said, people just aren't talking to you while they're heads down with their own customers. How has that uh, cycle of you know the U.S. tax season affected your product development cycle? Do you have to really focus on reliability? in a certain time of year, and then you can shift to new product work? Or are you able to just kind of keep everything going all year round? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I'll I'll shoot straight with you. It's tough because we, you know, we have, we're an agile company, we we want to deploy all the time as soon as we can. And we do. Um, And tax season comes and we have to really um, put you know, clamp down on on, on releases and and put some real uh, restrictions into place around change control. Uh, so we do, we have, we have, you know, gray out and blackout periods we refer to them as that, that make it much more difficult, if not impossible to make changes to the product. Um, and if, you know, and, and there's certain hoops that you kind of have to jump through if you do want to make changes and some things, you know, we say yes to and some things we say no to. Um, and it does, it slows down our ability to deploy um, during tax season, but it doesn't slow down our ability to keep working on stuff. And so we we continue to build and, and test. And it just means that once tax season is over, we we kind of have a little bit of a, of a log jam that gets cleared up where a bunch of stuff goes to the pipeline and gets released. And, and, uh, we, and we make a big marketing push out of it. You know, we we do a webinar, we show all the cool stuff that we built. Well, you know, while you've been busy working, you know, we've been busy working too, right? And, and it's a it's a, it's a big kind of dog and pony show and people get excited and it, and it helps kind of kick off what is typically a really strong selling season for us throughout the summertime. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great insight. Have you had similar situations like that for past companies you've worked for where there's like certain seasons for them that you have to really have those gray outs or blackouts? Um, I, I haven't had the seasonality um, uh, sort of factor before. Um, mm. The other companies I've worked at have, have not been as vertical based. They, they've been they've been kind of more, you know, broad tools for across across different verticals. Um, but blackouts and grayouts are something that I that I'm accustomed to. Um, earlier in my career, I worked for a company called Nice in Contact, which makes a, a contact center software. We were talking a little bit about it before before this started, and <laughs> yep. uh, competitor to we, us. <laughs> yeah, competitor to you guys. And uh, at any rate, we we had to be very careful there with releasing right. code because you take down someone's call center and like it, you're going to put yourself out of business. <laughs> like you just can't do that. And so yeah. time was really important to us. And we did we did have some customer specific blackout periods. So uh, especially mm-hmm. around like holidays, you know, if we had retailers. 
we could not be messing with you know their their contact center software during you know the the, the retail uh, season. So we did have some of that, but again, it was very specific to the customers. It wasn't like a general across the board because other other customers maybe who weren't retailers didn't have those same you know retail season uh, issues. Yeah, yeah, I know our PMs have to think about that as well because, like you said, you know if your uh, contact center is down for five minutes, an hour, a day, like that is tons of revenue usually just lost. (laughs) There is hell to pay if you're down for even a minute and you're doing contact center software and it's very tough. Yeah, yeah, totally. So somewhat on a related note, at Canopy, what technologies are you using for customer engagement and communication in your products? Yeah, so we use... um, we use a couple of different things. So we've got, uh, like, as soon as you ask that, my, my, my mind is blanked on all of them. Uh, so <laughs> we have Intercom that we use uh, mm. for our customers. Um, we have an NPS uh, tool that the name is escaping me right now that we use for sending out uh, NPS surveys um, sure. to our customers. Um, Are those like my, voice or text NPS surveys? It's... Um, uh, we actually send it uh, via email, but then we also, mm. oh, it's called uh, Delighted, I think, or Delightly, one of those two. Um, but we also have it, uh, they allow us through their API to embed it right into the product, which is even better. Oh, because nice. then you, you get pretty much everybody. And then whoever doesn't do it for the product, we, we send them an email. Like, hey, here's sure. your last chance to take the NPS uh, <laughs> you know, survey. Um, so we do that, and uh, I think it's called. I'm pretty sure it's called Delighted, and it's a nice little tool because it, it lets you like run some filters and 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 you can do some sentiment analysis and look for keywords and stuff. So that that's pretty cool. Um, Intercom's been good, um, but my favorite tool that we have, and it's funny because people don't typically think of it as like a voice of the customer like product tool. They think of it more as like a sales and marketing tool, um, but it's Gong. Um, and Gong, if you're not familiar with it, like it records your, your phone calls and creates a transcript and you can search the, those transcripts. And so, you know, I, I think it mostly gets used by salespeople and customer support people to kind of have a transcript of conversations, to like learn and train and get better and that kind of thing. We use it as a product research tool. Uh, in, in addition hmm. to all those things, I, I'm the thing, but, but we, meaning my team, uses it as a product research tool because if we want to know, say, how do people, what do people think about our task management dashboard? Well, we can go into Gong and we can search task management dashboard and pull up a transcript of every time that's been mentioned during a demo or during a support call or, or an implementation call. And, and we can read, it takes you right to the part of the transcript where that thing was being talked about. And you can kind of see what was being said about it. And if it looks kind of interesting, you can listen to the recording, you can jump right to that part of the recording. And very quickly, you can get a lot of really good information about how people are interacting with that particular part of your product. Uh, so it's a, it's a tremendous research tool and probably the one that we love the most uh, on the product team. Nice. Yudi, Yudi's the CMO of Gong. And Yudi, if you're listening to this, you just got a big shout out from a non-sales <laughs> use case. Yes. Pretty, uh, pretty good option there. <laughs> yeah, they need, they honestly should have a whole section on the website just for product managers. It's like a whole nother, you know, persona that they could be selling to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know even in marketing, you know, my, myself being in marketing, uh, something like that is super valuable because uh, you can change the messaging, whether it's in app or on your website. Um, you can tailor what you're talking about as well. But the product, the product part is also pretty fascinating. 
So one of our listeners asked a question for you. How would you recommend PMs to deal with failure? Uh, learn from it. I mean, that's that's all you can really do. Um, don't don't again. Like I'm a big big advocate of not having egos. I don't like working with people with egos. I like you know people who are humble and just want to be better. Um, and, and if you're a humble person, then failure isn't something that that really you know bugs you that much because. You, you're just already humble and you don't think you're perfect or that you don't think you walk on water. You know, it's the people with big egos that usually don't deal with failure very well because they, they, they either in, in denial that they failed or, or, or they're trying to come up with excuses or blame somebody else. But I think humble people are sort of like, yeah, I, I realize that I'm not infallible and I make mistakes and I'm going to fail. And they see failure as an opportunity to learn and be better. Um, and so uh, you know, like a lot of software companies, um, you know, Canopy, we do retrospectives um, on, on a regular basis. And it's the three questions of like, you know, what went well, what didn't go well, what can we do better? Uh, and, and, and we do those quite frequently. Um, and I find the what didn't go well part of the, of the meeting way more valuable than the what did go well, you know, <laughs> because it's the what didn't go well, where we're basically acknowledging like our, our failures and, and here's what we can do next time to, to do it better. And so, yeah, learn from it. That's that's what I would say about failure. And who are in those retro meetings? Uh, so we do them uh, with our, our uh, development teams, uh, which we refer to as squads, kind of referring to that like Spotify uh, um, model of, of uh, agile development. If you haven't seen the little video out on YouTube, go search for it. It's great. It's really, really a nice little way to organize your, your product development teams. Um, but our squads are essentially the, the units that, that are all of the different um, skill sets that it takes to, to make products. So you've got a, a PM, you've got a UX designer, you've got some front-end and back-end developers, some QA testers, and they're all, they all work together on a squad uh, on a particular part of, of your uh, product. Um, and so those squads do retrospectives um, on, on about a monthly basis. Um, mm. But we also will do retrospectives sometimes um, if there's a particular challenge that we went through, you know, maybe... Maybe we had uh, some, some unexpected downtime or maybe we were trying to work on kind of a, a cross squad, like a, like a cross department uh, initiative. And, and after it's done, like we want to we want to do a retrospective on it, you know, because, you know, again, you don't ever do anything perfectly. You know, even if it was a right. success, you can still find opportunities for improvement. And so we'll, we'll use retrospectives, you know, ad hoc kind of a mechanism in those areas as well. Hmm. Yeah, that's great. And how hardcore are you and the team uh, on Agile? <laughs> uh, I mean, like like everybody, I think I think uh, there are really no true Agile companies out there. Everyone's sort of <laughs> doing some version of Scrum or Fall, right? As some people like joke around <laughs> calling it. Um, you know, we're certainly not doing extreme programming. Um, we we and and. Something we've done at Canopy, which has been a little unique for me in my career, but I've kind of let it be because, you know, you can't, you can't just change everything about a culture when you join. <laughs> you have to kind of pick and choose your battles. Um, and one of the things that, that Canopy ha- had as part of its DNA before my time there is having a lot of autonomy on those squads to sort of determine what methodologies they want to use for, for planning work. And so... I have not been prescriptive about it. We have some teams that do Kanban, some that do Scrum, you know, some that frankly are a little bit waterfall-ish, <laughs> you know, more than others. Um, and, and we kind of let them do that. And like whatever works for them, as long as they're hitting their objectives and goals and they're not, you know, slowing the company down, 
we, we give those squads the autonomy to, to do things the way they want to do it. So I would say we're, you know, we embrace agile. We think of ourselves as an agile company, but you know, there, there's a, a colleague of mine that's great that I've, that, that probably learned most of what I know about agile from uh, his name's Nick Raymond. And, uh, and he likes to always tell me that, you know, the whole point of agile is that it's, is that, you know, you don't have processes, right. It's sort of like do what works. <laughs> Um, and so you see these companies that are like trying to build all this process around agile. And they've kind of missed, they've missed the boat on it, you know? Yeah, and, and so the, the core heart of it, <laughs> right. There's a whole agile manifesto of like people over processes. Right. And so the yeah. moment that you start trying to design a bunch of heavy handed processes for agile, you've kind of missed the whole spirit of it. And so, you know, from that standpoint, I think, I think that piece of the, the canopy DNA where we give teams autonomy to do what works best for them really is the spirit of agile. Hmm. Yeah. And for those of you who are newer into PM listening, go check out the Agile Manifesto. It's a good one. For those of you who've been in PM for a while, you'll, <laughs> you're very familiar with it. For your squads, Larry, do you have a leader in each one or are they kind of self-managed? Uh, they're self-managed. Um, we, we, you know, I think there's this uh, tendency for people to think of, of the product manager as sort of like the leader of the squad. Um, and, and you might think that because I'm like a, a product guy at heart that I would champion that, but I actually try to push against it because I want, I want those squads to be democracies, not dictatorships. Um, and I, and I think, you know, PMs are, are smart, but they don't know everything. Um, and, and, uh, you know, any, any PM who, who thinks he or she owns the squad is sort of, um, you know, denying themselves opportunities to get really good input from, from other people on the squad. And so, I really encourage having the squads be more of a democracy where, you know, everyone sort of has a vote. Um, and, and there are certain areas in which different people on the squad maybe have the final say. Um, and that's the whole, like, you know, the, the what versus the how, right? Like the, you know, the PM kind of has the trump card on what we're going to build, but the, the engineers have the trump card on how we're going to build it. Um, and likewise, you know, a designer is going to have the, the trump card on how it's going to look. And so, you know, each, each of those different functions will have their sort of trump cards. But the idea is you want those squads to, in a very democratic way, uh, collaborate on, on things and, and hopefully come to an agreement on, on what, what to be done. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. Are there any books or online learning resources that you would recommend to up and coming PMs? Yeah. So the dirty little secret about myself is I'm not a big business book reader. <laughs> I, I've read a few here and there, but uh, I typically work so many hours in the day that when I finally get an, a few hours to myself, I don't want to read more about work. I want to, if I'm going to read something, it's going to be like fantasy and like take me away <laughs> from the real world. Um, but sure. there are a couple of books that I have read that I, that I like uh, in the business world. My favorite is probably The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. That's a good um, one. And I like it because uh, it's all, it's all content and no fluff. Like I think a lot of business books are, could, could be like a, a medium article and someone turns it into like a 500 page book. And, and that's really frustrating for me. Yeah. Uh, but the hard thing about hard things is great because it's like a bunch of medium articles, like all brought together in a compendium of, 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 of a book. And so you can just go to the table of contents and be like, what do I want to learn about? Oh, I want to learn about how to fire somebody. Oh, I want to learn about, you know, how, how to, you know, be a better boss and you can kind of jump to that chapter and read it. And it, and it's, it's like a concise encapsulated uh, little lesson on how to do that thing. And so I, I really like it. I think it's a great reference tool. 
Um, and that would be at the top of my list of business books to read. Nice. Yeah. And it's also, like you said, no BS, like it's no. straight to the point straight and the from point. the trenches. From the trenches. I mean, the first, the only part that's sort of novelesque is like the the first couple of chapters because he <laughs> kind of talks through his whole you know story and and that's and that reads like I'm like someone needs to make a movie out of that because it's it's a fascinating read. But yeah. once you kind of get past that, then yeah, it's really just a, a it's it's a guide on how to do certain things that that uh, managers have to do. Yeah, totally. All right, so if you had a magic wand and you could make a wish and solve any one product management problem, what would that be? Oh, it would be prioritization. That's easy. I, I would have a little prioritization machine that just, I just feed in all of the ideas and it comes out with a fully prioritized list of what mm. order to do it in. It's like a little black box and little black <laughs> you get box. it. Yeah, it'd be amazing. That would be pretty awesome. So how do you explain what you do to your family or to non-tech people? Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking of like the whole, the memes of like, you know, how, what I think I do, what other, how do people see me, yeah. like that, that whole thing. Um, yeah. To non-tech people, family members, um, I, I typically tell people like, look, you know, you use software, like you use Facebook or Gmail or whatever. Um, somebody has to decide how those products work, right? Like what features to add um, and, and how to make them more useful. And what I do is I, I do that. For, for my particular product. Um, so, uh, I, you know, that, that involves talking to, to customers, it involves um, tracking what competition are doing, and then ultimately it involves working with the developers who actually write the code um, to provide them some, some direction and, and, and uh, oversight on, on uh, how, how to build the things that, that, you know, you believe are going to make that product more useful to your customers. Hmm. I like that take. It's very explanatory. <laughs> Better than I work with computers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, you never want to say that because then they call you and they can't get the printer connected to it. So, uh, I'm not an IT guy. Like, yeah, yeah, totally. So you know, Canopy is a decent sized company. You've worked at um, even larger ones in the past. Um, how do you go about managing stakeholder relationships? Oh man, that's an important part of the job. I've learned probably the hard way in a few prior jobs. You know what happens when you don't manage those relationships really well. And, and what happens is you, you lose credibility and trust with your coworkers is really what it comes down to. So, you know, I, I, there, there's kind of a, like a little saying that people use in product management all the time of like uh, PMs are like a little mini CEO. Um, and, and while there's some truth in that, and that like you own a lot of, like you have a lot of responsibility there, right? Which is, which is true. Where it's not at all true is that like, you're not the boss of the company, right? You're, you're still <laughs> like somewhere in the middle of, of, of the ladder. And, and so even though it's your job to make decisions about the product, it doesn't mean that people aren't going to second guess those decisions and, and question whether or not you're making good ones. And, and so I think if you kind of get into this like idea of like, I'm, I'm, I'm like the little demigod over the product, like you can really put your blinders on and, and, and forget the importance of getting people's buy-in to your vision for the product. And, and, I, and I see this happen a lot. And, and you know, I've joined a couple of companies where the trust that the business had in the product organization was very low because you had mm. product managers who didn't put time or effort into evangelizing the product roadmap to the rest of the company and, and, right. and to having those stakeholder relationships. And, and in some cases, they didn't deserve that trust because they were making bad decisions. In other cases, 
they were making great decisions. They just were really bad at doing public relations for themselves. And so they didn't have the trust, even though they probably deserved it. Uh, and so, you know, I started my career out in public relations. So I, I care a lot about how I'm perceived, how my team is perceived um, to others that, that we work with. And not because I, I, you know, I have an ego, but because I want to make sure that there's that, that people have confidence in me and my team that we know what we're doing. Um, and, and it's a big responsibility to run product, uh, especially for a software company. I mean, most of the money that's being spent at a software company is on product development. Uh, engineers are expensive. And yep. so to think that you shouldn't have to ever justify the decisions you're making is fallacy on the part of a product manager, because that's where, that's where most of the money's going. And, and, and so I tell product, product managers on my team all the time, like a big part of the job is going out and doing PR. It's going out and like building consensus with stakeholders in other departments um, about what you're building. Um, and, that, and that happens by getting their opinion, by sharing your opinion, and then by coming to a consensus. Uh, and, and then when you do that, people start to be bought in because they, they, were, they were part of the ideation. They were part of the prioritization conversation and, and they get behind you. And they're like, oh, yeah, you actually know what you're doing. Like, I trust you now. Um, and that's important. And that only happens if you manage those, those stakeholder relationships. Yeah. Super important. I know even, you know, I'm in marketing have to do the same thing, right? Like we can't just be in our own corner. We have to be talking and sharing with the company what we're doing as well. And, um, definitely really valuable. How do you think about the relationship with product with others in the company, such as sales or marketing or finance? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a, you interface with all of those, um, some more, more than others, depending on your role within the product org. Um, but uh, yes, there, I mean, there is not a department you don't interface with as a product <laughs> manager, really, is what it comes down to. Um, you interface with all of them. Uh, you know, on the sales side, you're, you're getting information from sales about what's, what's working and what's not working from a, from a demo standpoint. And, and you're you know, hearing about the reasons that they lose deals and the reasons they get deals. And in some cases, you're helping to close the deals. Um, and, and so that, that's a big, a big touch point. On the marketing side, you know, mo- mostly you're working with the product marketing folks around positioning, packaging, pricing, competitive analysis, market sizing, all of those sorts of things. Yep. Um, but also you're... Um, on the output side, you're you're feeding information to marketing so that as things release, they can they can be doing marketing campaigns around them, press releases, you know, sales materials and and whatnot. Um, on the CS side, it's similar to sales. Another you know area where you're getting a lot of information from from customers about uh, what what sorts of things they they do and don't like about the product and how to make it better. What some of those pain points are, and then uh, on the finance side. Um, I, I would say that's probably the one department that like gets neglected the most by product managers. And I probably didn't appreciate that as much until I kind of got into, you know, more of a management uh, executive mm-hmm. role. Sure. Um, I, I think uh, a lot of product managers aren't thinking about the financial impact of their products. They don't have a great way to measure it. And so I think if you can forge some relationship with finance, you'll find people who will help you do that. If you, maybe that's not a skill set you have yourself, but they'll kind of help <laughs> you figure out like, Here's how you can you can show ROI on the thing that you want to build, uh, and, and that that can be a really powerful uh, thing for a product manager if if you if you can if you can learn how to do that. It's easier to do for like a, a B two C product than it probably is like a like a B two B product, uh, but it can still be done. And and it's it's something that uh, I, I would highly encourage product managers to, to to figure out how to do that. 
Yeah, yeah, great insights. And you mentioned you started in public relations. Can you share yeah. briefly how you made the transition into product <laughs> management? It was pure happenstance, as it often is for, for a lot of product <laughs> managers. I mean, I, I went to college in the days where product management was not, a, was not like a, a discipline or a track that you could take as part of your MBA or anything like that. So, so nobody really went to college to be a PM like, they, like you can today. And, and so I, I got into public relations. My first job out of school, my public relations job turned into a marketing position because of like a company reorg. And so I, my, my options were lose my job or become a marketer. So I decided to become a marketer. Um, and, <laughs> Income and is good. <laughs> yeah. And specifically, I was doing product marketing. So, so hmm. product marketing kind of got me exposed to product in general. Um, and then just out of sheer luck, stars aligning, I got recruited or not really like I got reached out to, to come interview for a product manager position. And, and my title at the time was product marketing managers. I don't know if maybe the, the HR recruiter didn't understand that there was a difference between product manager and product marketing manager. I, I really don't know. I'd like to go back and ask her, but I don't, I've lost contact <laughs> with her. Sure. But I, I got into this interview to be a product manager. And, and I realized about two minutes in that I had none of the qualifications um, for the job, uh, but I did my best, like just to answer questions and everything. And at the end of it, the hiring manager, um, he, a great guy, a guy named Dave, Dave Priest, who you know, ended up being a huge mentor for me. And, and, I, and I love him to death. I've learned so much from him. But uh, he pointed to a stack of resumes on his desk you know, uh, that he had. And, and uh, he's like, you know, every single person here has more experience than you do. And I'm like, okay, he's, he's about to tell me that like, I'm not getting a job. And he's like, but he's like, I'm going to offer you the job because I see potential in you. And I think I can, I can mold you into a good product manager. And I'm like, whoa. And wow. that's how I became a product manager. So crazy story. Man, Dave, what a guy. He's a great guy. He, great mentor. Learned so much from him. Hmm, very cool. So with a team of 50 people, how do you think about creating a team culture? Yeah, uh, you know, so I mentioned when I, I joined Canopy uh, a little over a year and a half ago, it was already five years into its infancy and it very much had a culture already. Uh, and so I didn't necessarily have to come in and build a culture, but there were things about the culture I wanted to change. Um, and there were some things that weren't working. Um, and so then that's challenging. I think in some ways changing culture is harder than building culture because mm. you have to, you know, you have to convince people that there's a better culture to be had. Uh, and, and you don't do it alone. So you have to find allies. Um, and in, in my case, you know, my main ally uh, was, was the VP of engineering, a guy named Gordon Roy Lance. I mentioned him a couple of times now in the, in the call in this, in this interview. So I figured I should probably put a name, a name for the person. So Gordon uh, has been, a, a great ally. Um, and, and we, we were of like minds with some of the cultural things that we didn't like. And, and one of the things that we didn't like is there was a little bit of a lack of accountability. Um, so we had a, autonomy was a big part of the culture, which is great. It's great. It's good to give people autonomy to sort of, you know, do what they feel is most important. Yeah. Um, but autonomy doesn't come without accountability, right? There has <laughs> to still be accountability. And so that was something that we had to kind of help uh, you know, uh, instill in, into the culture and it, yeah, I would not have been able to do it on my own, but, but with Gordon and then kind of getting, you know, other people in, in leadership roles on the team kind of bought into some of these cultural changes, we were able to, to make those changes over time. Um, and something that Canopy does really great. And, and this I credit to our CEO, uh, Davis Bell, um, is we, we do a lot of, uh, you know, you have NPS that you do for your, 
for your customers, we do an NPS for our actual uh, employees. So we send out uh, an NPS survey to employees uh, once every two months, I believe. And, and we, we have a net promoter score, you know, how would, would employees promote canopy or not? And, and the question is like, you know, would you, would you suggest, you know, would you recommend uh, to, to a friend to work at canopy? Uh, you know, it's a simple yes, you know, one, one to 10 scale. Right. And then we use the same, you know, grading system as, as NPS does. So yeah. anything that's a eight or above as a promoter and, and, and so forth. So we do that and we track it. And, um, and there's some other questions in there, right? Like why, you know, and like, what are, what are like, what are three things that you would change about Canopy? What are three things that, you know, we should keep doing? What are three things that we should start doing? And so and it's all anonymous. Uh, so it all just kind of dumps into a spreadsheet. The only thing we know is what department the person's in. So we kind of mm-hmm. know, you sure. know, what their, what their job function is, but we don't know anything else about them. And as an executive team, we read through all of those and uh, we learn a lot from that. And it's, it's another really great tool that we've had in being able to uh, assess our culture and identify like where we need to make changes. Hmm, very cool. You know, being a chief products officer, your relationship with the CEO, uh, as you kind of alluded to there, is really important relationship for you. How do you think about fostering that that collaboration between you and the CEO? Yeah, it's a big part of the job, um, and I and I'm I'm fortunate in that I have a great CEO. We get along really well. Uh, he, you know, we're we're of like minds on a lot of things, um, and, and one of those things is just you know, again checking the ego at the door. I talked about that earlier, and and uh, just being open minded about things, and and so we have a lot of really good conversations. Um, I I think uh, I have found that like every CEO that I've worked for has been a little bit different. And, and uh, a lot of those differences come from their career backgrounds, because as I mentioned earlier, when you're in an executive role, you're, you're oftentimes managing job functions that you yourself haven't done before. Um, and so, you know, a CEO that comes from an engineering background is different from a CEO who comes from a sales background. And, right. and so uh, understanding those differences is important. And it, and it kind of helps you understand, like, where do I need to be more explanatory about things? Where, where do I not need to be? Um, and and uh, I think if you want to have a good relationship with your CEO, ultimately, like you're trying to make their job easier. You're not trying to bring them problems. You're trying to bring them solutions. You're trying to uh, make yep. sure that you're feeding them the information they need to do their job successfully. You're helping them to uh, look good to their boss because CEOs have a boss too. It's just the board of directors, <laughs> right. um, but that is their boss. And, and you want to make them look good to their boss the same way that you want, you know, you want people to make you look good to your boss. And so that those are some of the things that I think are important to have a good relationship with your CEO. Um, Canopy has been a unique situation for me. It's the first time I've joined a company where, uh, well, the CEO that I currently have joined after I did. So, so oh, normally you join and, and the CEO, at least for me, has been someone who's been there for like ever. And I'm like, they know everything, you know, there is to know. And, and so it's kind of like, teach me. Um, and in my case, um, the, the uh, founder CEO had stepped down soon after I joined, um, and then a new CEO came on. And that was a, kind of a new experience for me because while there was a lot to learn from him as far as you know, how to be an executive, he wasn't going to teach me anything about the industry or the product or the company because he was brand new. And so right. I, I had to help bring him up to speed on, well, like, here's, here's tell me, let me tell you about the accounting industry and let me tell you about our competition and let me tell you about some of the challenges that we're having. And so that was a kind of a, a new experience for me, um, but, but one that, you know, has been a lot of fun. Uh, and, and so 
Yeah, I think you just have to understand uh, some of those different backgrounds of your CEO and then adopt or, or adapt rather your approach to that relationship to, to you know, bring the things that are going to benefit that relationship. Yeah. Well, Larry, you've had some great insights today. I think it's really going to help our listeners. Last question for you. Who's one other person that you think we should bring on the podcast? Uh, do you want a product person? Right. Let's see. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw out uh, a lady named Emmy Southworth uh, that I worked with uh, a couple a couple jobs ago at a company called Ghostry. She, she's currently uh, at, at Lendio uh, running their Sunrise, uh, I think it's called Sunrise Division, which is a, which is a cloud bookkeeping tool. And uh, Emmy is phenomenal. She's got a, a background in uh, creative design and UX and then kind of changed, changed stripes and became a, a PM and, and now runs a uh, product in UX uh, for, for Sunrise by Lendio. So she's phenomenal. That's who I'd recommend. Nice. Well, Emmy, we hope we can uh, talk with you soon. Larry, okay. thanks so much for your time. Uh, we yeah. really appreciate it. Have a good day. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's podcast and thanks to our sponsor, Fox Implant as well. If you're looking into how to improve your communication and customer engagement, check them out. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and tell your friends so that others can find it more easily. Have a great day and feel free to reach out to me, Grant Duncan, if you have any questions you want asked in our next episode.